From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday. To each and every one of you, I had to think about it for a minute. Welcome to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. Then we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Just fine. How are you? I'm terrific, thank you. Nobody tells me anything, so what are you going to talk about today? Uh, the rosary. Ah, what a great idea on the eve, the vigil, if you will, of uh, the Feast of the Rosary. The Feast of the Rosary, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, the Feast of the Rosary, as you know, was instituted by Pope Pius V, and it was to celebrate the victory of the Christians over the Turks at the Battle of Lepanto on October the 7th, 1571. Of course, the rosary was a prayer that had been around for quite some time. Its actual origins are somewhat shrouded in mystery. In the Middle Ages, there were lots of repetitive prayers, and this one was connected to the Psalter. So as you know, until John Paul II added four more mysteries, there were basically 15 mysteries, and therefore 150 Hail Marys reproducing the 150 Psalms. In the Middle Ages, it seems, the people used to recite all the Psalms from memory, and they used little beads to count, as they did that in a little purse or sack or something. But obviously, it's kind of a daunting task to learn all 150 of the Psalms. So as Marian devotion grew in the Western Church, this became connected to Marian devotion. Now, there is, as you know, a story, and it's a, you know, it's a, an important story, a tradition that when St. Dominic began his order in the preaching mission, that he received a revelation of the rosary from Our Lady, and the Dominicans used the rosary in their preaching mission to encourage people to develop a prayer life. In fact, so much so that The Dominicans begin the rosary in a different way than the rest of the church because we looked on it as the office for lay people. And, you know, when the office is said in Latin, and it's quite complicated even in English, but the rosary's not. 
And not only that, but in the Battle of Lepanto, Pius V added the second part of the Hail Mary. Up until then, the Hail Mary wasn't as we know it. It ended with our Lord, with Jesus. But then the petition, Holy Mary, Mother of God, was added three centuries after St. Dominic lived by Pope Pius V. Now, what is its value for us? There's a month of the rosary, it's October. There's a feast of the rosary. And there are many people who find repetitive prayer very hard, and they think they have to think of every single word as they say it and that sort of thing. Many people also think that the rosary is a Marian prayer. Well, it's true that Our Lady is highly connected to it, but it's actually a prayer that centers on Christ. For one thing, in the Hail Mary, we bless Mary because of the fruit of her womb, Jesus. And all of the mysteries are connected in some sense to Our Lady's relationship to Christ. So it's a sort of hamney thumbnail sketch of the mysteries of the Bible from Christ's life in order to give us a meditative device. Not only that, but people who try to engage in meditation, they often find it hard to start or hard to find the theme. Well, in this case, you have the 15 mysteries, now 20, if you wish to add them, all of which turn around gospel um, ideas in order for us to meditate on the gospels. You have these in such a way that they're connected to this repetitive prayer the Hail Mary, and this is not boring if you look on it as the background for all of these meditations. It takes very little time to do. Many people can say the rosary in 15 minutes or 20 minutes. You're not supposed to laboriously say every word like this, but instead it has to do with what was in the gospel passage today about asking you will receive, seeking you will find knock and it will be open to you. And in this case, we're asking that we might experience contemplation. So the rosary was also prop always propagated by the Dominicans as an aid to contemplation for the laity. And another interesting thing about it is it's a very incarnational prayer. You know, in Catholicism, we don't think there's anything wrong with the body. We have bodies, and as a result, we have physical mediation between God and man, primarily the sacraments connected to Jesus' body. But in the rose, you have a nice little beautiful thing that you can hold in your hand. When I used to do hospital ministry, many people would just get consolation, even if they couldn't speak anymore, from holding the rosary in their hands, because it's, it's a very human thing. So there are many, many different levels on which this recommended prayer, some people, of course, don't relate to it, but for the most part in the church, it's been highly recommended by many of the popes, and Mary even prayed the rosaries, you know, with Bernadette and the children in Fatima, uh, in order for us to develop this contemplative spirit. And in the month of the rosary then, we should appreciate this gift from God and appreciate the fact 
that Mary specially underlined this kind of prayer because it's connected to her son. It's a Christological prayer, not just a Marian prayer. And uh, she gave it to the human race in order to encourage us to have a deeper faith and to ask, therefore, you know, once we read or do the mysteries, then we say our prayers and then we experience a kind of meditation in which we concentrate on our love of God through Christ. And so we therefore receive in contemplation. You know, one of the criticisms that's made by some of our separated brothers and sisters is that sacred scripture speaks uh, explicitly against repetitive prayer, but they kind of leave an important adjective out of that, don't they? The scripture actually speaks about vain repetition as opposed to just repetition. Well, not only that, but as you know, our Lord reduced prayer basically when he was asked to teach them how to pray to the Our Father. And one of the reasons he did that was because the pagans believed that unless they enumerated every god in every petition, their prayers wouldn't be answered. Whereas in Christianity, prayer is primarily a dialogue interiorly between our souls and God, the Trinity, because of grace and the Holy Spirit. So um, we're not doing repetitions prayer for very long, I mean 15 minutes, it isn't quite like having to name every God in every petition. And what we're doing is providing a background to develop meditational life. And someone who regularly prays the rosary is never going to be far from the gospel, huh? Well, of course not, because it's all centered on the gospel. Beginning with the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Birth of Christ, the Presentation of the Temple, all those mysteries are found in the gospel. Even the coronation of Mary as queen of heaven and earth. Now, I realize that um, the separated brethren wouldn't necessarily interpret it this way, but the book of Revelation 11.1 1, has the woman clothed with the sun, which is normally interpreted as Mary assumed into heaven, but also as an image of the church. So in both senses, she is connected also to her son, Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Call us with your experiences about the rosary. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. From Rome to your home, with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all of the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. You can watch live and uh, watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. First up today is David, a first-time caller in Excelsior Springs, Maryland, uh, or Missouri, excuse me, listening on the Catholic Radio Network. David, you are on with Father Brian Mullady. Hi, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I was wondering if you could please, uh, so I'm not a Catholic, but um, the verse you were referencing where Jesus was talking about repetition, could you please elaborate on the difference between vain and non-vain repetition, please? Well, I didn't reference that. Uh, <laughs> my handler did. Uh, <laughs> the, the point is, as I said, the pagans felt that they had to mention all their gods and also all their various petitions in order for their prayers to be heard. Christ, as you know, when he is asked to teach the disciples to pray, he reduces all the things to the Our Father. So first of all, you have the term Father, which, of course, establishes the fact that we have an intimate relationship with God. And then you have the glorification of God in heaven and on earth, and then you have morality, basically, um, as well as some people think the sacraments. The daily bread isn't just physical bread. It's the bread of the Holy Eucharist. And then as a condition for experiencing a deep life of prayer, we have to exercise the same mercy and forgiveness toward others that we expect God to exercise toward us. And it's presumed that the person has, because of grace, an intimate relationship with the Holy Trinity. So as people who love each other, you know, you don't sit there and enumerate, at least you shouldn't, probably, every single instance that you've shown where you show the someone you love someone. It suffices to just basically say, you know, be present to them and, and share their life. And it's similarly true with God. We don't have to talk a lot, but we have to act according to what we think is correct. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Elizabeth, another first-time caller in Spokane, Washington, listening on the EWTN app. Elizabeth, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello, Father. Hi. Father, I have a question. I um, say the rosary at night. Uh, I try to say it every night. And during the each decade, when I say the Hail Mary, at the end of the Hail Mary, where it says, pray for us sinners, I add my own intention there. Um, for example, pray for my daughter's guidance or mm -hmm. pray for my mother and father. Um, mm -hmm. And I do that. Each decade is a different intention. And um, it does help me to focus more and to concentrate more. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, I guess, is it okay that I'm doing that? Am I uh, doing anything wrong? Of course it's okay. Wrong? Yes, of course it's okay. Uh, if you find it helpful, what you're doing is merely expressing your needs, basically. And you have to do that in prayer anyway. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, it's a very wonderful thing you do. Uh, other people may not relate to that, but if you relate to that, that's great. Just keep it up. 
the important thing is that you learn to rely on God for all your needs. Is that helpful for you? It is very helpful. I thank you very much. You're very welcome. Surely. Thanks so much for the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We have an email from Edward, and he says, I've heard that Jesus did not take on the Father's wrath when he died on the cross. Is this what Catholics believe? What Catholics believe is that Christ, when he died on the cross, took upon himself the non-moral punishments for our sins in order that he might reverse the unloving disobedience of Adam and Eve by a loving act of obedience. Now, if you, by the Father's wrath, you mean that the justice of God has to be served in this. Um, in that sense, you could say he took on God's wrath only because obviously in order for justice to be reestablished, the punishment has to fit the crime. And so, first of all, in a positive sense, the atonement involves Christ's loving obedience. But in a negative sense, and it's one of the reasons why he took on human flesh, he has to be able to obey in the face of death, which is the non-moral punishment for sin, in order to reverse Adam and Eve's sin by reestablishing justice with regard to the Creator, which no human being could actually do on their own. So he took on some punishments for the original sin in order to reverse them and to, by an act of love, return us to a loving relationship with the Father. If by God's wrath, you being the the wrathful uh, tyrant in heaven is sitting up there uh, raining uh, evil on his son because he's a particularly attractive victim because he's innocent. No, we don't believe that. That's, a, that's an interpretation of the atonement, which isn't uh, ours. But we, he has to take something from the original sin, which is uh, punishment, which, of course can be identified with the just judge, and in some sense can be identified with God's anger. And anger is an emotion that seeks to reestablish the right, but these things are not moral. They don't affect his freedom. And that's basically his passion and death. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Stephanie writes in, how can we expect society to respect the Catholic Church as a source of morality with all their teachings against homosexuals? Well, first of all, the teachings aren't against homosexuals. Uh, there's a very important distinction made in the Catechism of the Catholic Church between the homosexual as a person and homosexual acts. So we seek to establish the proper relationship of sexuality to marriage. And that includes a connection of marriage to children, which obviously homosexuals can't have naturally at all. So uh, what we're doing 
is we're trying to rehabilitate, if you want to put it that way, marriage, to become a full sign of the relationship of heaven to earth again, of God to man, of the two spouses, as it was established in Genesis, male and female who created them, in relation to life. Now that includes calling homosexuals to account for their deeds. We don't dislike them as people, obviously. In fact, we're trying to save them as people because we want them to go to heaven. We love them. But that love does involve telling the truth. And the truth is not that the homosexual is a person, but the acts which he performs or she performs are not personal acts. And they can lead, of course, in the ultimates that they can lead to damnation, which we don't want anybody to experience. So I think the, the weight of your question, uh, of course, it obviously to me comes from the media. And the media never understand any of this stuff because they don't understand anything philosophical or metaphysical. Uh, for them, everything is politics. And so they interpret the, our opposition to homosexual marriage, for example, as hating homosexuals. We don't. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Kathy in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Kathy, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Uh, hi, Father. Hi. Um, a few years ago, maybe about 10 or so, I was in church praying the rosary, the Sorrowful Mysteries, and while thinking about Jesus' agony in the garden, I was thinking that he shed, shed blood, but Nobody had ever touched him. He wasn't beat, being beating, beaten or anything. And yet he was shedding blood. But was that because he was afraid of the cross or afraid of what was coming? Or was that because our sins were, were coming upon him? Because I know he took all our sins to the cross. Was that the moment that that... I would, say, I would say what you're, both are true. Christ, by his divine knowledge in the garden, had knowledge of every single human sin that has ever had been committed or would be committed. And he took them all into himself to offer an atonement for them. And the horror of sin uh, shook him so much emotionally that it created a psychosomatic reaction in which he actually sweat blood. Also, the um, even the <laughs> Even though Jesus knew he was going to rise from the dead, and Thomas Aquinas is very clear, scriptures say that. Modern scripture scholars don't think that could be the case. But Thomas Aquinas is very clear that he couldn't, as man now, not as God, have suffered the passion if he didn't know about the resurrection. Nonetheless, knowing all the sufferings he was going to experience, it wouldn't make it hurt any the less. In fact, you know, Jesus' body was exquisitely uh, composed, which means to say that he had a perfect body. That means that a perfect body experiences more pain rather than less pain when it's cut because it's more sensitive. So because of the sensitivity of Christ's body, he knew the great agony he was going to experience and then, of course, the horror of death, even for someone who knows he's going to rise in the dead, 
is is not a, a pleasant thing. It's a sobering thing. Now, of course, Christ wouldn't have had a corrupting death by nature, but in fact, uh, it was human beings that corrupted it. So both things caused the somatic reaction of fear and anticipation, and um, so he sweat blood. EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. I've got a rare opportunity for you today. Wide open phone lines for the second half of the program. Grab a phone and pick up, uh, give us a call here at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Johnny writes in, Father, can you explain absolute divine simplicity? Yes, in God, there is no distinction between essence and existence. There is no division in God. There's no potential. Everything is act. act. Um, God is infinite being. Uh, There's no uh, greater or less in him. The distinction in the Trinity is only a distinction of relation of origin. Because the Father is unoriginated, the Son is originated or begotten, and the Holy Spirit is begotten from both or one through the other, depending on what tradition you're following. But all the three are equally God, all three are equally infinite, all three are equally simple, because in God there's no distinction in being between essence and existence. As long as you've got your Thomist groove on here, Phil would like to know, what are the attributes of God, and where can I learn more about them? Okay, the attributes of God are those terms we use to express the one infinitely simple God from different activities which we experience of God in the world. So, the God in whom essence and existence are one When we look at this from the point of view of intellect, there is no distinction in God between the intellect and the will and the passions and all that. But the way we can conceive of it, when we talk about God as all-knowing, that's his truth. However, his truth is different than human truth in this sense. In human truth we come to a prior existing truth. And therefore, the definition of truth is the conformity of the mind to the thing. Now, in traditional philosophy, uh, my mind inside of me corresponds to an objectively existing reality outside of me. And to the extent that the concept in my mind doesn't, it's not true. God, however, because he's infinite, eternal, and simple, his thinking something causes its truth. His being in creation causes its being. His love causes its good. So you'll notice that in Genesis, it's stated after every day, God saw what he made and it was good, which means it's a result of divine love. But there's no real distinction in God for all those things. 
Now, you can find this in any credible philosophy book inspired by scholastic philosophy because the basic attributes of God are being truth, goodness, and some people, like following Father Balthazar today, would include beauty in that. But uh, that's how you determine the attributes of God. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Rush would like to know, does the Catholic Church believe that Jesus is the Son of God or a prophet? Well, again, uh, the Catholic option isn't either or, it's both and. He's both a prophet in his human nature because he's the last, um, well, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he is the prophet par excellence because he tells the truth, all right? Um, All the prophets look forward to him. He's also the son of God, because he's the word made flesh. And for that reason, he is unique among all people that have a human nature because he does not have a divine, a person, a person, human person. There's no human person in Jesus of Nazareth, but his personhood is divine. It's the second person of the blessed Trinity that takes a human nature on him. Now, As a result, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit flow through his second nature, not only for himself, but for us. This is the source of Jesus as the head of the church, and he who is head of the body of the church, and we read in St. Paul. And so Christ's headship would include his being the the prophet, capital T, capital P. Karen writes in, the, the History Channel had on a friar who said that God was going to destroy the world in the first century, but Jesus stopped that plan and started Salvation History. Is that true? Oh, no. Salvation History began with Genesis. Uh, the whole uh, reconstitution of the human race as a result of original sin, which demanded the special grace of the Redeemer. Uh, It's called a greater mercy. And of course, you know, in Christ, um, uh, we not only are joined to God in nature, everybody, all of us are joined to God in nature by grace, but in Christ we have a unique joining to God, which is a human nature with no human person who is joined to the second person of the Trinity which is the personhood that that expresses itself in the nature. So uh, we have a greater grace in him. Uh, The Easter Vigil says, happy fault necessary sin of Adam that bore for us so great a redeemer. Uh, It's a miracle. The incarnation is a miracle. So no, all those theories, there was a a lot of speculation in the first millennium's end, like in the second millennium's end, this is the actual date of the end of the world. Now, of course, we have more reason for thinking that now than we did then because we have atomic weapons and things like that. But still, everybody took this year 2000 as this magical date 
And no, uh-uh. God doesn't want to destroy the world. He wants to save the world. He created the world in order to bring us to heaven. So there are people who sit there and think that God is up in heaven, this wrathful, destroying being who wants us all to go to hell in some way. You know, what it reminds me of is um, when I used to teach school, because remember I taught school for many, many years. And so the students would say to me when they had an exam, are you going to be easy on the exam? I'd say, okay, let me see now. Let me get this straight. Uh, you took this class, and I'm teaching this class, so you don't learn the subject, right? I wasted three months of my life for you to all fail. Now, does that make any sense to you? Why would a person go through all this except because they want you to succeed? Well, God created the world because he wanted to people heaven. He isn't sitting up there in his wrath waiting to destroy the whole thing. If anything, we're the ones that are going to destroy it with atomic weapons and things like that, not him. Now, we say it's him because he allows this to occur. But there's no positive will in God to destroy the world. So we, we need to think about the fact that God created the world for good. When I was a little boy, uh, the second question of the Baltimore Catechism, which we all memorize as children, was why did God make me? Well, first the, the first question was who is God? God is the supreme being, infinitely perfect, who made the world. The second question, why did God make me? God made me to show forth his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven. He didn't create me to send me to hell, and he certainly didn't create the world to destroy it. He wants the world to go to heaven, but they have to live the truth for that to occur. And he knows what we're like. Egotism often predominates over the other are positive parts of our nature. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Douglas is in Twin Falls, Idaho, a first-time caller listening on Salt and Light Radio. Douglas, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi. Yes. I'd like to know what the Bible says about cremation. It doesn't say anything about cremation. <laughs> cremation is a difficult uh, subject a lot of people ask a lot of questions about it um, Christian, Christianity generally does not practice cremation because cremation is something that comes from some eastern religions and it's based on the idea that the body is evil and has to be destroyed to set the soul free now, of course, we don't believe that. We think the body's good. And my body's not only good, but it's holy. That's why in our funeral services, we bless the body, uh, we incense it with holy water, because it's participated in all the good actions that we've done while we're on earth. Now, today, because a lot of people don't want to spend a lot of money on funerals, and some people have emotional difficulties. My mother certainly had this with their body being in the grave. They just, it's something that they just can't deal with. We do allow Catholics to practice cremation, provided 
that it's reverently done and that it doesn't involve any idea that there's something evil about our bodies that needs to be destroyed for us to go to heaven. In fact, as you know, some part of the DNA of your body while you existed on earth is going to be a part of your resurrected body. So whether you burn it up or not to put to bury it, it's going to live again. So there is nothing directly stated about cremation in the, the Bible. I, I would like to make one other point. I, I understand there's a whole tradition in Protestantism about how everything has to be in the Bible, but we don't believe that. We believe in tradition and scripture are both equal. And tradition is the gospel preached. And in fact, it predated tradition, which, uh, scripture, which is the gospel written. Although, of course, scripture does involve a special authority, which is the fact that it's divinely inspired. But we have to look at the Catholic tradition, what the church has always practiced and preached sometimes, to have some insight into some of these practices. Bernie is next up in the great state of Iowa, watching us on YouTube today. Bernie, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, um, I'm not sure if it's showing up on the screen. I um, have a question about, and I'm not sure what the term is, but when you receive all three penance, Eucharist, and confirmation all at one time, I think there's a term for that. or Sacraments uh, of initiation, is that what you're thinking of? Well, and then something else that, you know, you receive them all together because that's how you have to go on with your life. And um, some family members were saying that before Vatican II, that was always the case. You always received them the same day. And I was like, I, I don't think so because it's, it's really not church doctrine. It's just a thing that can change from time to time. Do you have? Oh, sure. Um, in the Eastern Church they have a tendency to give all three of those sacraments at once when you're baptized. But in the Western Church, oh gosh, from time immemorial, you know, the bishop came and did confirmation. You were baptized first. And First Holy Communion wasn't actually given until you were 12 or 13. It was only Leo the, you know, the 13th who wanted more frequent communion who lowered the age to six or seven because we wanted to be sure the person knew what they were doing. So I don't know who told you before Vatican II all three of those sacraments were given at once, because in the Western Church that wasn't true at all. It's obvious. Um, in the Eastern Church, yes, there are some of the uh, different rites that, that do that. Thanks, Bernie. We appreciate the call today. Next up is Jake, another first-time caller in Chicago, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Jake, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Father Milady, thank you for taking my call first and foremost. Uh, basically, I just had a question in reference to the verse in Matthew 18, uh, 13 through 17. I guess more specifically, verse 17, um, in reference to uh, treating a brother as a Gentile or a tax collector? Uh, could you be more specific, please? Could you read me the text? I don't have the Bible memorized. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. no, I apologize for that. 
So, you know, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him yes. alone. If he listens then, if to not, you. and then he doesn't repent, then treat him as a dad. Yeah. Um, the idea is that um, it's, it's about fraternal correction, basically. And so, should we correct our brothers? Well, St. Thomas is a very interesting take on this. Yes, we should. Scripture tells us we should. However, the purpose of correction is the amendment of the evildoer. And if you can be pretty certain that the evildoer is going to become more obstinate and is evil uh, or not repent and not listen because of the, who you are, then you have an obligation to keep quiet and um, just sort of leave them to God. Now, if they've been publicly reprimanded by the church, like let's say they've been excommunicated formally or something like that, then they don't listen, they don't repent, then that's where the verse comes in about treating them as a tax collector or a sinner, which means basically separating them from the sacramental life, which is what happens in excommunication. Uh, you're, not you're still a Catholic, but you just can't participate in the Catholic sacraments and things like that. God bless you, Jake. We appreciate the phone call today. Be sure to join us for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass right here from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel every day, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Next up is Marianne in Loveland, Colorado, listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Marianne, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. First of all, I wanted to thank you for answering God's holy call to be a priest. That's so wonderful of you. And I have a, I have a question um, about the rosary. Both my husband and I are um, critic Catholics. And for me, um, he didn't come from a very Catholic family. I did. But from the time I was a small child, I have had a problem with the rosary. I've had a problem getting through the rosary. And both he and I together, we've, when we attempt to say it together, it's difficult for us. And lots of times we fall asleep. We can get to the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, and we actually really like it. So I was wondering if you have any suggestions for us to be able to um, maybe like the rosary more? First of all, not every devotion in Catholicism is meant for every person. One of the problems you have when you meet new spiritual directors is because they have something has meant something to them, they want to impose it on everybody else. Well, people have different personalities, and that's why there are different devotional paths. The Rosie's been an especially powerful one, but if you it doesn't mean anything to you, and the Divine Mercy Chapel means more to you than use that. The important thing is that you have a relationship with our Lord. But because it's the Feast of the Rosary, I felt called upon to discuss what its positive fruits were and what its history was and why it was so recommended. 
But there's nothing wrong with you if you don't relate to the rosary. It's just, um, it's a human tradition. So some, some people relate to it, some people don't. And uh, we shouldn't be trying to force people into it. On the other hand, if people sincerely wish to develop a devotion to the rosary, or they want something that is, has been considered by many, especially helpful to developing a contemplative life, then we can instruct them and encourage them to try this. Thanks, Marianne. We appreciate the phone call. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Marie would like to know how the Catholic Church interprets the book of Revelation. (laughs) Well, uh, one of the best interpretations I've ever seen, and he didn't just make this up. This is a common one from time past. It's Scott Hahn's interpretation of it. You may remember that uh, when he was a Protestant, he was always, all the Protestants are always trying to figure out the book of Revelation as to when the end of the world is coming. I used to watch Trinity Broadcasting when I was in Los Angeles because I was always curious to know what the latest theory was of the end of the world. And I remember one fellow there said that now that the United States had conquered Iraq, they were going to move the United Nations to Baghdad, which was close to the age of Babylon, and that was going to be the end of the world. So I thought, yeah, there's about as much chance of that happening of those guys from New York moving their Manhattan townhouses to Baghdad. <laughs> as there is at the end of the world's actually coming tomorrow. But Scott Hahn, when he attended his first Mass, he heard, you know, the words, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he said, where is that in Scripture? Well, he discovered it was in the book of Revelation. So he began to realize that the Mass was the structure of the book of Revelation. So, you know, where the scrolls are on... First of all, the letters of the churches is like the penitential rite. Then you have the scrolls with the seventh seal. That's like the liturgy of the word. And then you have that absolutely marvelous, deep uh, adoration of the mystic lamb of all creation. And you remember what they sing, the just, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. And that's why Scott Hahn said that the book of Revelation was about the Mass, and the Mass was heaven on earth begun. So that's as good an interpretation as any. And uh, instead of trying to figure out what day the world is ending, it seems to be much more important to realize that John had a great mystical vision of the whole of creation, using various of the images of his time in order to express the depth and power of what occurs in the Eucharist. Uh, quickly, we'll head to Lee in the great state of Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. And Lee, unfortunately, we've just got two or three minutes left, but I do want to get to your question. It's an important one. Welcome to the program. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for taking my call. My question is, what does the Catholics believe today about suicide? I uh, unfortunately uh, have a son who committed suicide at a young yes, age, yes. and uh, I know what my son believed, and I know pretty much what he was, but I also know 
old Catholics believe something that are. Well, I, I, I look. Um, a lot of children are committing suicide now because of the drug culture, and because they feel feel hopeless and they're too materialistic and all that. The basic interpretation is: were a person to commit suicide from full knowledge and will, like let's say you were in a suicide pact with your lover in a soap opera, and you couldn't get married, and so you agreed to kill each other because of it. And there are lots of instances of the past then that's, you know, you're killing uh, an innocent human being, you. And you're also depriving society of the gift of yourself. And therefore, that's a mortal sin. And unless you repent of it, Hitler, after all, committed suicide. Unless you repent of it, then you go to hell. Now, there's two factors involved there. That's the objective nature of the deed. But then there's the question is, how much freedom is involved in the decision. Uh, many people have emotional difficulties today that uh, almost determine them to do a certain thing. Many people, uh, young people especially, don't really know their own mind. They aren't fully developed. And so what we recognize now is because of modern psychology and because of this, that there wasn't any freedom involved in this and therefore the person was more a victim of their passions than they were someone who morally chose this very egregious act. Now, beforehand, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground because of that. But that was an attempt by the church uh, to underline how serious an action this was. Now you can be buried in consecrated ground under the idea that you weren't free when you did it. God bless you, Lee. We'll keep you and your son in our prayers. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? In the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless.